You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Lex Corwin. He is CEO and founder at Stone Road. Uh, We're going to talk about the world of cannabis, about brands, about integrated markets, and kind of where we are in terms of really kind of expanding the industry and what Lex and his team are, are doing in uh, a couple of different markets. I'm interested in this conversation. I always find, you know, people that are operating in multiple markets have a whole different set of sort of complexities and things to think about. I guess most people listening to the program know cannabis is a little unique when it comes to how things are regulated, how the markets develop, and how you kind of operate in multiple states and multiple, you know, multiple markets and kind of the complexities that come with that and some of the strategies that come with it as well. So excited for the conversation, excited to kind of hear the story and, and see what uh, see what's going on with Stone Road. Thanks for Lex. having me. Yeah, welcome to the program. Before we kind of dive into Stone Road and what's going on today, I'd love to get some background. How, I guess, generally, what was your professional background? How did you get into cannabis? Tell us a little bit of the story. For sure. I mean, I've, I've always kind of been in cannabis, I like to say. I mm-hmm. The name Stone Road is from the first place that I ever grew cannabis. I was kind of a mischievous youth uh, growing up in New York. <laughs> and my parents and I, I decided to go to a off-grid rural farm school for my junior year of high school. And oh, interesting. Yeah. So it gave me a lot of really unique and helpful life skills, but it yeah. also you know, showed me how to grow everything. What, this was in New York or where was this? Uh, yeah. So it was in, in Vershire, Vermont, population <laughs> 650 people. It was extremely different from my upbringing in New York where my apartment building had more than six. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Probably the floor of your apartment building had more than that. Yeah. yeah. So for me, yeah, I mean, I, I learned the, basically the basics of, of organic uh, agriculture and uh-huh. it really inspired, you know, a love of nature, a love of the outdoors, a love of farming, and, you know, basically just how much work goes into a farm, but also, like, how rewarding it can be. Yeah. And so, for me, when I came back, being, like, <laughs> already, like, a rampant pothead, I quickly <laughs> ordered seeds from Amsterdam, and uh-huh. I planted them on my neighbor's property. Of uh, course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in a town, Connecticut, where my parents had a beach house. And so the road that she lived on was Stone Road. And, Got it. Um, we've never stopped since. 
I love it. I love it. Well, so so connect the dots a little bit. I mean, so, well, I guess let's go back to the kind of farming practices and what you learned. I mean, how directly were you able to apply those things? What like kind of practices or things like didn't work as well or you had to kind of translate because of cannabis, either because of the nature of cannabis and the plant or because of how cannabis, you know, from a regulatory point of view. I mean, I guess what was, how, how did you transfer this knowledge that you gained into the work that you're doing with cultivation? So, I mean, all kind of farming and growing basically relies on like the four main like nutrients. And so, you know, obviously every plant is different, but just understanding how to grow such a wide variety of, you know, fruits and vegetables in high school kind of, it also just inspired a, a love of farming. And so, you know, I, I didn't back down from the process. It was, you know, the whole stone road thing is like the, the weed that I grew my first year when I was, you know, 16 in 2009 was borderline unsmokable. And um, <laughs> so, you know, it was East Coast uh, ditch weed. And uh, so I had to buy, you know, an ounce of good weed and an ounce of tobacco and I mixed it all up. And I pre-rolled Stone Road spliffs and, yeah. you know, I sold them to my friends and other kids for 20 bucks a pop and I could not believe how much money I made. Exactly, <laughs> and yeah. I literally just never stopped. I just started then, when I ran out, I started buying weed and grinding up in my room, much to my, you know, my parents <laughs> under their nose, just trying to be discreet and, you know, basically rolling these pre-rolled joints and high school and you know it was really really successful and you know I made a bunch of money and then I went to school in Portland Oregon and you know the industry was in the medical phase but it was clear that it was moving into the um, you know recreational but there was a booming medical market so you know I quickly I didn't care too much for academics and so I, I spent most of my time you know driving out to White Salmon, Washington, Hood River, Oregon, which is about nice. two hours outside of, of Portland. And, yeah. you know, just meeting with growers and working there. And, and, you know, I learned so much from so many incredible growers. And I actually forged a relationship with one where, you know, he needed help getting his product into Portland shops. And he had no form of, you know, bookkeeping, accounting. And yeah. it was kind of a great match because I was able to learn all this great cultivation knowledge from him. But in turn, I was able to professionalize his business. Yeah. Um, and we grew a lot together. How much in the beginning was, I mean, we, you mentioned the cultivation practices and kind of understanding how to, how to grow. How much of the business knowledge, I guess, where, where did you get your business kind of knowledge? Was it the early stages of? Yeah, I was always extremely entrepreneurial. I, I joke okay. with my parents that I, you know, I literally started a new business every year since second grade like not kidding you know from selling like knockoff like colorful live strong knockoff bracelets that i would buy like on canal street in new york oh, yeah. to Yu -Gi -Oh. <laughs> yeah to Yu-Gi-Oh cards when that was hot to you know one of my friends uh family one of my friends families had a huge annual christmas party and we were at his house and they were left with you know, like literally pallets of Snapple. And so we told our our school, it was like, like fifth grade, that we had too much sports equipment and we needed an additional locker. And we opened up a shop in the locker selling, because this was a little private all-boys school. So, of course, there were no vending machines with, yeah. you know, anything sugary. So we basically opened up like an underground store selling 
um, you know, Snapples and sodas, and then we expanded into pens and like school supplies, and until that all got shut down. So I was always naturally very entrepreneurial, and my dad was also in finance, and so just growing up with a basic understanding of like what you know gap accounting in and like you know what a balance sheet is and you yeah. know the difference between you know revenue and EBITDA and it's like all these things that I took for granted uh just because they were like normal discussions also mm-hmm. just having you know the Sunday New York Times delivered to us weekly and just you know reading through it and the amount of information I was just able to, to soak up gave me too much self-confidence um <laughs> you know basically a delusional <laughs> yeah delusional self-confidence you know allowed me to walk the walk and talk the talk even yeah. if i i even if i had never done a business before i knew weed and i knew sales and that was pretty much all i needed and yeah. so i joke with my parents i don't think it's that funny but i made more money in college basically selling weed than what they had spent sending me there yeah. and it was a private school so it was a good amount of dough and so you know for me it was just graduating from college i had a huge little little starter stash of, mm-hmm. of dough and so yeah. you know i went into real estate development my mom's in real estate so it was very natural to me i've been looking at floor plans before i could talk and you know i did that for a year and a half and you know my uh boss at the time, who was, you know, the founder and CEO of, of the real estate development firm I was working for, graciously, you know, allowed me to work out of his office for six months, provided, you know, the initial seed capital, helped me, you know, manufacture at his house mm-hmm. uh, for the first six months of the medical business and, and really just provided a platform for me to start Stone Road. And, um, you know, we bought the farm in 2016. And of course, this is cannabis. So, of course, you knew, uh, you know, the shit is coming. And, um, you know, it was six months after buying the farm, I started with two business partners, one of which who, you know, robbed us at gunpoint and cleared out our warehouse and the other who sued me because he left. But, you know, it was just one of those things where it was like, it was like an MBA program wrapped up in in 12 months, you know, it was like, (laughs) Exactly. Rule of yeah, you thumb. Go to MBA and start a cannabis business. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it can go wrong, it's going to go wrong, and that's yeah. basically what I learned. I also learned any project is going to take probably three to four times as long and be three to five, three to four times as expensive. And so, just you know, understanding that as a 23, 24 year old really allowed me when COVID came around in 2020, where I had a small business before COVID. You know, the fact that people were getting paid to sit at home and smoke weed, you know, our business grew fabulously. I mean, we grew literally over 800% in a year and, you know, it took us to a new level. Yeah. So I guess, do you feel like your, you know, kind of unique ability is kind of bringing together kind of this, the cultivation side, the business practice side, the financial understandings, like where where do you kind of find your kind of unique kind of skills or capabilities are in terms of, you know, being in the cannabis space? Um, I mean, I think you need a few different things. For me, tapping into the community that we knew was going to support us, which was initially the queer community and still is, you know, I'm gay myself. And so when I was starting the brand and we had no money, because we had spent all of our investor dough on dumb shit. And so... <laughs> Classic. Yeah, so we had, 
no money and we needed content and we needed an audience and i just basically put out like an open call yeah. like do you want to make content for us we'll feature it on our, our rapidly growing instagram and we have a cool brand and i mean for the first two years we literally didn't pay for content and it also yeah. not only had a great effect at giving us so much free marketing material but it also really fostered and built uh, a large community of people who identified with our marketing or felt like they had kind of played a small role in the growth of Stone Road and, yeah. you know, created some really loyal, you know, customers. And yeah. so for us, leading into that and creating imagery that, you know, I always joke like when I was kind of entering the cannabis space in 2016. You know, you had the like bearded bendo white farmer, or you had yep. like the heavily tattooed girl dabbing next to the pool in Palm Springs, and there wasn't really anything <laughs> being like marketed in between that. It was like yeah. kind of two ends of the spectrum, and I didn't really see myself in either of those. So yeah. I was like, all right, there has to be something more. There has to be something like high end, beautiful, interesting, provocative. I always joke on panels and stuff that were the equal opportunity nudists because, you know, if you look at our Instagram, I always joke like one of our investors is a little older than me, texts me. He goes, I'm not sure your latest photo, if it's a woman or a man, but I guess that's the point. And I was like, that's, <laughs> that's not the point, but we'll run with it. Yeah, and, exactly, uh, we'll take it. You know, so for us, it was creating really kind of provocative imagery that the cannabis industry had never seen before. And we had rapid growth on our Instagram and we had people, you know, reaching out. There's a lot of queer people in cannabis. There's a lot of queer yeah. buyers and people who initially yeah. put us on their shelf just because they wanted to support a queer brand. And then we're blown away by how well the products did because, you know, we never asked for anyone to buy us because, you know, we're a queer owned company. I mean, if mm -hmm. you want to give us a shot, we're, we're down to compete with any brand on a level yeah. playing field. But ultimately, you have to create products that really speak for themselves and, and knock consumer socks off. So for that, you know, it meant having our own farm, doing our own cultivation, growing the type of cannabis that we wanted to bring to our customers and doing it in, you know, a really sustainable fashion, uh, yeah. which also became a unique selling point that, you know, so many of the brands in California are completely co-packed. So for us saying, hey, we actually grow our own cannabis mm -hmm. and not only do we grow our own cannabis but we do it hyper sustainably at our own farm and you know we really leaned into that messaging and you know that's had a lot of success for us it's also had you know it's pretty necessary to compete in california which is the largest most competitive cannabis market in the world you know we needed to own multiple steps of the supply chain to be able to have the margins to compete with some of these larger players so yeah. everything happened for a reason and you know we wouldn't be in the spot we were today without you know our initial push into the queer community and you know women at large and having the farm yeah uh, so a bunch of questions let's talk about the kind of the whole idea of community because i find this is really both kind of interesting and i think somewhat unique in terms of cannabis in terms of the ability, the importance of kind of figuring out your segment or your the market that you really want to you know develop or focus on, and developing a community around that. Like, I guess, how important do you feel just the concept of community is inside cannabis, and how have you seen it kind of develop and evolve? I mean, you mentioned in the beginning it, there was you know basically kind of this stoner culture and a little bit of an alt culture that was the big focus, but you know 
today we've got so many different groups that are using cannabis, cannabis products. I mean, how do you kind of look at community from a strategy point of view? It's really like every brand needs their set of loyalists and it's just mm -hmm. figuring out who your brand resonates with. And yeah. so for me, a lot of it was like, who's going to support us initially, then just leaning into that. You know, it's like we knew we had a lot of fans in the queer community. We knew we had a lot of supporters. And so then it's doing things like, you know, this year we had six different pride strains where like, you know, in, in prior years we've done three that had, you know, maybe more like gay man focused names where this year we did you know, one for buy kind of awareness. So we did one called Buy Now, Gay Later, which is a play on obviously <laughs> Buy Now, Gay Later. And mm -hmm. we did one for lesbians called Second Date Wedding Cake, playing off the joke that, you know, lesbians love to rush into marriage. And, you know, it. just using all these different colors of different, you know, pride flags for our stickers just to create products that you know we know the consumers will love you know there's no room in california cannabis to produce products that won't you know absolutely crush it you know yeah it's like you have to build products that you know that there's a market for because unless you have you know the 30 million dollar marketing budget of can to basically you know invent the space you know you just you got to be really savvy and you really got to just create products that you know the market is hungry for and for us it's really fresh we basically produce batch sizes that we know will sell out in 90 days so we don't have some products sitting on the shelf for 10 months um hyper potent you know we 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 use um you know hash that we manufacture ourselves and we use THCA diamonds, which are like 99% potent uh, to mm -hmm. really get our infused products into the 40%. Not because those are necessarily products that I could personally consume, um, but like, you know, the market's there and the market wanted it, you know, in the whole distillate fueled craze and like you know, 2019, 2020, 2021 with fuzzies, you know, they were the hottest pre-roll in California and they did like the distillate infused with hash and, and we wanted to do something like that, but we didn't want to use distillate. It was gummy. The high was bad. It was messy. Um, and so we basically found these like THCA diamonds. It's like odorless, tasteless and pretty much pure THC. So wow, like, interesting. Yeah, we'll give it a little sprinkle. The product burns the same way. It tastes the same way. But, um, you know, we're getting we we'll get those really jaw-dropping numbers. Yeah. yeah. Do you find this is like you, you figure out kind of your segment and then you figure out the products that that segment wants? Or is this like you look at the products or the kind of the, the type of cannabis you want to be producing, type of products you want to be developing, and then find the market for it. Like which which way do you, have you found has been the kind of leading factor in this? So originally, yeah, it was just kind of throwing ideas to the wall and seeing mm -hmm. what stuck. I mean, we launched lots of different products, none of which we still sell as kind of the, you know, as the market has shifted, we've realized that consumers want smaller joints and bigger packs of them so while we still sell singles because we like to have products that are available to you know a hundred percent of cannabis consumers so that means having a sub ten dollar out the door single the real growth recently has been in you know 10 packs both you know in california uh and in massachusetts uh we found that you know those those sales 
you know, those sales have really outpaced other product sectors as the market continues to kind of consolidate. So, you know, again, just listening to the market and building products that we think, you know, will resonate with it. Yeah. I wanted to go back to some stuff you mentioned about your cultivation practices and the fact that you're an integrated operation. I mean, other than kind of your background in cultivation and, you know, desire to make sure that, um, you know, you're, you're developing high quality product, what, what else have you found that having an integrated system and integrated, you know, business this way has allowed you to do? I mean, is there stuff around production, around management, around supply chain? I mean, what have been some of kind of the benefits of having an operation set up like yours? Oh, so many. I mean, I always joke in the beginning, it was the farm saving the brand because the brand would just hemorrhage money. And the only way that we made actual money was like selling wholesale flour just into the general market. And that money sustained the brand. And then it all kind of flipped in like late 2021 when the kind of COVID craze was kind of subsiding and like the biomass prices started to really fall off a cliff. I mean, they had been dropping precipitously, but uh, it started to get really bad, like, you know, $500, $600 pounds where they'd been solidly, you know, nine to 1200. And so the farm then needed the brand to survive. So it's like, yeah, if yeah. I didn't have both, uh, you know, we would have probably been out of business a long time ago where yeah. now, a hundred percent of what we grow at the farm goes into the brand and because you know we're we're doing the manufacturing you know we're able to basically make a higher margin you know the more steps of the supply chain you control the higher the margin you know the less middlemen and also honestly the higher quality product because we can control yeah. how long it takes to get out to you know market where a lot of these other brands that are purely co-packed they're completely at the whim of their co-packer which, you know, if it takes six weeks to get something to market, it's like you're no longer selling the freshest cannabis. And a lot of that is regulations, but also a lot of that is just, you know, generally like the executive control. Like if you don't have final say over when the product goes out, you're at yeah. the whim of someone else. Yeah. You mentioned this sort of hyper sustainable practices. I mean, what, what I guess, what are you doing, uh, you know, uniquely in terms of how you're actually cultivating, you know, soil management, things like that. Like, what are the things that you're doing that put you into this hyper sustainable mode? In terms of the farm? Yeah. Well, we couldn't get electricity. So that was a good, <laughs> that was a good impetus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were off grid. We got the entire property that I bought, you know, we bought it out of foreclosure. It was the bank was taking the property. You know, we bought 57 acres of the beautiful Sierra Nevadas for only $335,000. Wow. And so when we got PG&E to come quote us how much it would cost to bring <laughs> power to our property, they said $1.3 million. I said, okay, I guess we're going... We're going solar. And, uh, that that. yeah, that settles that. And so, yeah, we installed a lar large solar setup. All the water, you know, we weren't on county water. It's all came from our own deep water well. We've since drilled uh, an additional two wells on the property. And, you know, a lot of our marketing and branding revolves around that this, you know, this isn't some, you know, Salinas or Santa Barbara based super farm with greenhouses as far as the eye can see. This is a yeah. really small, deliberate 10,000 square feet on a 57 acre property, which really leaves 99.5% of the property completely wild and untamed. And like, mm -hmm. 
you know, the animals and the flowers and the birds that make up the rest of the property that kind of give it its magic. You know, we brought onto the website, if you go to stoneroad.org, you know, you're greeted by our logo, but anywhere you click around the logo, it spawns a hand-drawn little animation of, you know, the birds, the bees, the worms and the frogs and the flowers that kind of create the farm. And we've since kind of taken that identity and applied it uh, really strongly into our branding, our merch, and people have loved it. I mean, it's not only super cute, but it kind of gives people a better idea of where their cannabis is actually coming from. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. They're, they're beautifully designed products, I must say, just kind of looking to the website, and it's um, it's powerful. I guess, tell us a little bit about expansion. You're working in a couple of different markets now. Like, what was the decision process like? How have you chosen these? How have it been going? Give us a sense of how you're doing on the um, on the growth side. Yeah, I mean, we, like, I'd say in 2019, I got an email that changed my life. It was from a gentleman in Oklahoma who said, oh, I just got back from my annual California trip. I bought basically every pre-roll I could find, and yours was the best. Mm-hmm. And he said, I want, I'm launching this huge operation in Oklahoma where the third largest or he was like we're the largest liquor distributor currently but we're selling the business and we're going into cannabis and so I flew down there I met with the team super nice guys really impressive amount of infrastructure and so Oklahoma was our first deal we signed in 2019 and launched literally the week of the COVID lockdowns and in the yeah the first first week of March and um in 2020 and obviously that was really good for sales um and then it just kind of had a snowball effect where once we were like a joke like a baby mso then kind of the offers (laughs) just started coming in and then the following year we did massachusetts and you know then the year after we got an opportunity in michigan you know both states were were currently on shelves and then we're about to launch in New Mexico. I think by the time this episode comes out, we should have products live in New Mexico. And that's our fifth market. And New York uh, will be our sixth market right after. Yeah. yeah. And what have you noticed? I mean, uh, you know, obviously sort of different markets. Um, like, I guess, how have you had to kind of navigate, adjust? What I guess, what are you noticing in terms of the markets that are particularly interesting or, you know, you're successful in and maybe the ones that are more challenging? Every market is challenging uh, (laughs) for different reasons. I mean, the Massachusetts market is amazing, but we've almost been crippled a little bit by our success just in terms of, you know, we literally still can't even keep up with demand a year later, which is obviously not great because we're leaving a lot of money on the table. But, you know, when you license the brand out, you are kind of at the whim of your co-manufacturer. So, you know, we learned from that that we didn't have uh, enough kind of control in the decision-making process. And so for New Mexico, we're doing our first revenue share where we have a lot more say. You know, we contributed the the packaging for free in the agreement. And so we, you know, are basically able to 
you know, just have a seat at the table and, you know, have more skin in the game and, and be more involved. And, you know, we haven't launched there yet, but it's our same partners from Oklahoma. So we know we, we like them and like doing business with them. So yeah, it's just learning from prior experiences. You know, in Michigan, the launch was amazing. I mean, we sold literally tens of thousands of, of joints on, on launch. And, and now it's about, you know, okay, we're only selling an infused single. We have to have way more form factors. You know, what does that look like in a Michigan market where the prices are continuing to drop? There's a lot of retail compression, you know, and it's like, okay, let's, we know any product that we bring to market has to absolutely knock it out of the park because there's just like California, there's just no room for, you know, something that's not going to fly off the shelf. Yeah. Any other markets that look interesting to you right now? Anything in your roadmap in terms of where you hope to be? Yeah, I mean, we're we're doing a deal in New Jersey, but the prices of biomass are so outrageous. It doesn't really make sense for us to launch right now with, you know, we, we definitely lean into our value price point. So it doesn't really make sense there right now, but we'll be keenly watching that market. We are uh, working towards getting approved in Ohio. And that will be another market. We might wait for this federal legalized, uh, not federal, uh, the recreational you know ballot that's going on there because obviously there'll be a lot of packaging changes. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we're just looking for new markets. It's like we're not doing any legacy markets. There's gonna, not going to be any Washington, Colorado, yeah. or Oregon launches. But, you know, Arizona, definitely Nevada. Mm-hmm. I'm actually in Nevada right now. You know, we'll definitely be doing something here. So, you know, it's just ultimately... Any place that has a great partner, we're keen. Yeah, that's great. Lex, it's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about Stone Road, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, uh, you can DM us on Instagram. Uh, it's Stone Road Farms on Instagram. Uh, you can email us, um, info at stoneroad.org. You can go to our website, stoneroad.org. And yeah, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Perfect. I'll make sure that the links and the handles and everything are on show notes so people can get that. Lex, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Of course. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, Download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.